0: Love, talk, radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we are here every week to help you and your communities get broadband and telehealth everywhere it needs to be. Uh, today our topic is accountability. Uh, I think that uh, people probably don't realize that um, we've been spending as a nation maybe five, six billion dollars every year for broadband connectivity in rural areas, and um, a lot of these communities haven't gotten much further than they were a decade ago. And now we're trying to finally get some stuff from from for urban areas, and all of these issues of like accountability in both rural and uh, urban is craziness. And to help us kind of go through some of this craziness and sort it all out is uh, my first guest, Lori Sherwood, who is the Director of Commercial and Market Development for Render Networks. And uh, I am so happy to have Lori here because she's worked on the county government side and the vendor side. And so she has experiences on both sides. And so, Lori, welcome to the show uh, today. It's just great.
2: Thanks, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. It's nice to do this show with you again.
1: Excellent, excellent. Um, let's start with um, sort of a sad thing, but it's it is what it is. We've got cities where they have maybe... 40, 50% of their low-income communities without broadband and their, the local politicians have no interest in broadband or very little. And then you have um, those folks uh, that have moved the needle forward, that are just doing great stuff, and their leadership is fully engaged. So first question is, uh, Lori, how do you motivate uh, or move or remove uh, this interested um, leadership in this day and age? You
2: know, well, that's a great great question, Craig. And, it, it, you know, everything starts with – it. a lot of the broadband projects over the years have started with a grassroots movement. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know, you have a local champion, um, whether it's a person in the community, a teacher – someone who works for the local government or the city or the county um, who is really the one to champion the idea for broadband and finding solutions in their community and it usually starts with an individual or a group of individuals that are um, pushing for broadband to be a solution uh, for a solution Mm -hmm. for broadband and um, you know although sometimes you know that person is an elected official um, I have worked in many um, communities where the champion is the mayor, um, like in Fairlawn, Ohio, where you have, you know, the mayor takes a very active role in promoting broadband and, and um, really talking about it in the community. So it really helps when that champion is the elected official because, in, you know, obviously they are the ones who have a bully pulpit, so to speak. They have access to funding. Um, they can really push that from within. It's it's a little bit harder um, road if if it's a community member who's really kind of um, working it from the outside pushing in. Now that being said, of course the COVID you know the pandemic has really changed the tide um, because you know where five years ago or three years ago, sometimes you had to convince some of the elected officials that broadband was a good idea and necessary the pandemic has really exposed the gap in our communities to the point where you don't have to do that anymore, right? That's mm-hmm. the, the pandemic did that for you. And so now it's really a, 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 per, a process of exploring options and what is the right solution for the community. And, and But there's a lot of education involved in that.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I picked up on uh, this last couple of weeks um, there are folks who are feeling that um, there are a number of elected officials that don't understand the value of broadband. They don't understand it's it's worth. they don't understand it's economic development worth. They don't understand tele, telehealth and as being a sort of an enabled by broadband. So in that case, not necessarily against the program, but they definitely don't have a lot of, like, basic knowledge, what do you do as a, you know, activist community person to to get that process resolved?
2: You know, it really, you really have to do a lot to kind of demystify the process. And apologies mm-hmm. to my dogs who, of course, wait till I'm on the podcast to start barking. Um but okay. um, yeah, there's a lot that you have to do on the education side to demystify things. You know, um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there ab- around technology, what type of technology is best, whether you know a community should look at fiber or, or wireless, um, what it means um, to have uh, a network with with those types of technology. But it's really it's really a lot of education and and some of the strategies to use for getting over that hurdle is um, having uh, communities that are open to, who have done this before, who are open Mm -hmm. to talking to others, right? I mean, that's the single best reference um, is, you know, if you have another community in your geographical area who has gone down this path, um, you know, are they, would they be willing to talk to your community? and give them some um, advice, you know, or recommendations. You know, we, for example, they went down um, this road and did, did these five things, and they felt like three of them are great and two of them weren't, and here's why. You know, it really helps Thank to have you. case studies um, at your disposal and people who are willing to be recommendation, to serve in that recommendation role, because that that's really does a lot to help move the ball. Um, and, and that's a key part of the, that entire
1: education process. Mm-hmm. When I um, was doing a number of projects, um, one city said, "Okay, why don't you just come in and we'll pay you to just talk to us? You know, get our, get all the right people together, and basically just have the basics of of broadband and what it means and what it can do for the community." And I found that that was very uh, that was very helpful and it moved the thing, you know, the project forward. Have you seen similar things in the different uh, projects you've been involved with?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's um, a number of communities that, you know, again, it kind of goes back to the case study element, right? It's really helpful mm-hmm. to, to see live examples of where something has been done and how it's successful. Um it, Chattanooga, Tennessee, of course, is a is a community that is known to most people in our industry. They were one of the first really large, successful fiber to the home network builds. Um, Now you have um, all of these uh, benefits that have come about as a result of the network being in Chattanooga. You have businesses locating there. You know where you can really start to see what those economic benefits are rippling across the pond at, you know some years after the network is built and so um because before you're when you're just starting down the road of building a network it is really hard to the benefits and, and the economic mm-hmm. um outcomes although you know we, there's there's so much more data that's been accumulated now you, um a couple of years ago i was working with a community in in um, northern wisconsin and um one of the during the stakeholder interviews you know i was repeatedly told we really need to have broadband in the community because we're losing jobs. We're, we can't keep people here. You know, kids that graduate, they graduate from college, they don't come back to the community. We can't recruit talent. We need. We really need to have that. And so um, I, I'm finding that there's been a shift in the last couple of years where you really have to do less of that um, mm-hmm. sort of justification, you know, for why broadband is such a, an important um, element and for for and well critical infrastructure, but um, it really does help to have examples on hand and know what those economic benefits are from communities who have done this before.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in the area of accountability, so if you've you know gotten through all of those hoops and hurdles, what can be done about the accountability sort of at a micro macro level you know the, the the state or the city um you know what what can you do to you know, to ensure accountability and then i want to move it into the um you know at this project level which is now your definitely expertise yeah. um but yes let's 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 talk about that
2: so you're so specifically accountability around making sure that funding is used appropriately. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, with the, let's just take a step back for a moment and just talk about a couple of different types of funding mechanisms. You first, you have um, funding from, you know, programs that the FCC manages like RDoF, CAF2, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
2: There's funding coming out of the USDA in the form of reconnect grants, for example, there's the NTIA grant um, funding. Um, then there's uh, CARES Act money or ARPA money that has been pushed out to the states and localities and where those funds can be used for broadband um, purposes. And each one of those programs has its own set of rules, um, post-award requirements, milestones, etc. cetera. Um, so there is structure that is set up within those programs to require an awardee to um, a, be accountable
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um, and have a plan for meeting those milestones, is that happening? Um, I, yes, I believe so to a point. I mean, but what happens when um, someone doesn't meet those milestones, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but as far as making sure that there is accountability. I mean, really the best thing, whether, no no matter who the funding arm is, whether it's one of these grant programs, whether it's a city or a county's own general fund money that they've set aside or some other private source of funding, you really have to have a plan for um, deployment and making Mm -hmm. sure that you are, you're reaching your goals, that you have a plan for sustainability and that on the back end, that you're doing everything you can, you know, a a big, a big piece of accountability is transparency In Mm -hmm. public funds. That's what you want, right? You want to be able to see that your local government, your taxpayer dollars are being used appropriately.
1: Mm -hmm. So now as we move through this, um, what can be done at the project level? I mean, because ultimately, you know, a city is going to have a project that they say, okay, we're going to move forward. Now, that accountability is, you know, great in the abstract, but now what are some of the tools or the ways that you can bring these um, elements to put together some sort of accountability factor,
2: so the first way is um, really in making sure that the city has selected the right partners and vendors. You know, is, is the city, um, obviously, uh, they're going to need some help, whether or not they've decided to go forward and build their own ISP and become, become an ISP, um, they're going to need help, whether it's engineering vendors, construction vendors, or if they're outsourcing the entire um, project to be both built and managed by the private sector. They need to make sure that their vendors are the right ones and that they're selecting the right partners. That's the first part of accountability is making sure that that RFP process that they are going through to select those vendors is clear and transparent. And this is where um, you often see a lot of projects kind of go um, take a right turn, you know, where they should be going down uh, straight, a straight road. It's Um, it's amazing to me how how many mistakes I see in this whole, in the RFP procurement process. Um, We could probably spend an entire show talking about that, great. Yeah, I'm sure. um, It is remarkable. You know, I mean, I've seen, for example, um, communities put out an RFP, it's not clearly written, Uh, vendors respond with all sorts of proposals, right? And then it makes it difficult for, the community to evaluate those responses to make sure their money is going to be spent wisely because they run um, a a wide range of proposals and models. And, um, you know, and all of that is because it's unclear um, in the RFP. I've seen a lot of communities where they just go straight to an award without conducting interviews, Um, you know, and, and that, that always boggles my mind because, you will always get better pricing and better clarity if you conduct interviews and issue out a clarification, right, after those Mm -hmm. interviews for best and final offers among multiple um, partnership groups or companies rather than just go straight to an award. Um, So, I mean, I think when when you're talking about the municipal side of things, I think accountability really starts with that RFP process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, and then it moves into the project level.
1: I gotcha. So the one thing I have seen a number of times over the years is the um, when the project becomes a political football, and when <laughs> we look at broadband right now, and whether you're looking at it from the uh, the Project level, or you're looking at at the state level, or you're dealing with the federal element, right? There is all kinds of political mischief that can come into the the the, the program. So, <laughs> what do you do? And I, you know, one thing that kind of comes to my mind. Um, I was talking to one person who was at one of the, the bigger cities, and they. Um, they, they weren't very happy with the political structure, the local political structure, very much in the beginning. But as they started to move things, they started to have um, progress, actually getting people connected, right, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the political folks just went off the rails. Right How do you stop or how do you uh, deal with that do you just basically put them in a room somewhere and say, "We'll call you in ten, 10 years <laughs> but what what do you found found to be effective?
2: Um, it is difficult to manage you know if you have a committee of people there, there's a lot of interest around funding programs right and and you often find that there's there's always someone who has just enough information and education to be dangerous
0: yeah yeah um, i know them
2: well but <laughs> but who may not always be who may not always be right um mm-hmm. i think the the best strategy is really just being uh, educating as much as possible making sure that you have you, you know put your um put your plans together so that they are transparent you can explain them and bring in outside, um, assi- you know, assistance. Sometimes it's it's better if someone hears a message that that is coming from somebody else, whether it's an expert, whether it's another community member, um, mm-hmm. and and you know, kind of use that tag team approach to diffuse to diffuse the situation.
1: I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, yeah, it seems like it can be uh, particularly rough. Um, and and especially if you have people that were on the fence when the project started, um, I have found. Well, so let's look at another uh, aspect of things. Then um, you know you're in the business of um, you know you sell a platform, and um, the, the the accountability element, I guess, is very strong with your project. I mean, tell tell us about a little bit about. You know what you do, what your product does, and where does it call fall into the area of, um, you know, ensuring accountability?
2: Yeah, terrific, great question. Um, so Render Networks is a geospatial construction management platform, Mm -hmm. and we um, it's a software as a service platform. So we are we are not a design or engineering firm. We're not a construction firm. We we work in the middle. We work with with all of the stakeholders within um, a broadband implementation, but strictly our lane is construction management. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, just to right off the bat, the biggest difference between using Render and using a traditional um, project management system or series of Systems is that we don't we take paper out of the process. So not only are we environmentally conscious,
0: but (laughs) what
2: that means is that we are removing um, obstacles from from deployment. And and what I mean by that is our construction crews. We have three tools that we use that all share one cloud-based platform. Our construction vendors out construction vendors out in the field use an iPad instead of construction drawings to collect all of the data and the information and photographs of the task they are completing in the field in real time. Um, When a task is complete, for example, maybe the task is install a vault. They will um, pull up an iPad, they will pull up the task, they will run through the different elements of construction, they they will answer questions in the iPad, collect the data, take some photos, upload the photos, close out the task. And as soon as they're done with that task and they've synced it back to the platform, the project manager sitting at their desk in the office can view exactly what's happening out in the field.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And with, um, and the tasks are set up in a way that they are based on a sequence of dependencies so that you're never going to release a task to a crew where the dependency has not been completed yet. So if you have splicing crews, you're never going to send those splicing crews out until the cable is installed. Wow. Um, so what that enables you to do is build your network in parallel with other tasks and things that are happening at the same time, as opposed to a linear. What often happens with paper processes is because you don't have real-time information coming back in the field, everything is very linear, First you send, you know, this crew out to do this work. Then they come back and you do this crew, send this crew out to do this work. When you have everything visibly in front of you and all the tasks broken down and you can see it in a, um, on a map, you know exactly where work is being done. You know exactly where work isn't being done. You know where you can send crews out. And so all of this creates efficiencies and helps you go as much as 50% faster. Mhm, so the render platform is really um an amazing tool in innovation use of innovation for saving time and money um and as far as accountability goes, where it's really critical is because you're capturing all the data in the field and it's populating your platform with that information as it's coming back, we also have something called the Hub, which is a series of dashboards that is that is using the data that is being collected and reported daily to populate dashboards in real time. So here's where your accountability is. So you can see exactly how many assets were installed today, how many assets were installed this week, where Mm -hmm. are they, how much work are the crews doing, how much fiber has been installed, how much of it is yet to be installed. So you can literally see everything that's happening in real time. Which enables you to make changes quickly, um, change management is done in the field as builds are generated on an on an ongoing progressive basis as things are completed, so all of that really helps you with accountability because you can address problems before they happen or before they um, before there's collateral damage right so ten years ago. <laughs> I directed the Maryland BTOP initiative um, as the ICBN component, which was a $100 million project. And mm-hmm. we, we had an, a situation where a um, construction crew, subcontractor, towards the end of the project, decided that they were going to um, save on materials and instead of place cable in one, from one reel in one consistent segment, they used scraps of leftover cable from a number of different reels. And, of course, what that did was create like 10 times more splicing um, points, increase the latency issues. It did all of these things. But we didn't discover that process until six weeks later when we get the bills from the um, subcontractors that are are showing all of the splicing activity that weren't anticipated. Then you had to send an engineer out there to inspect it, find out what happened. So two months later, you finally piece it together that what they did was use all of these different scraps to construct a, a segment that should have been one single cable.
1: Gotcha. Um, I have a in question. Ren- in
2: render, you in render you would know that immediately.
1: Gotcha. So um, in this, you know, this sort of accountability matrix, um, it seems like we have one issue, which is um, if you're using software to manage the different parts of the project, how do you get people educated on the process so that you actually get the use, the accurate use of the technology? Because I would imagine that this becomes an issue, especially as you start going up the line from, you know, the project team to the mayor's group to, you know, having to uh, reconcile uh, paperwork with the, uh, the state if you got money from the state and the, if you got money from the feds and so forth but you know, technology to me has a bad side which is not everybody can figure out the technology so we've got, like, we've got about maybe four minutes or so I mean how do you deal with that issue of the competency, the technology competency issue?
2: So it's actually, you know, it's, it's always brought up, right. From the initial, well, well, I don't know about this because it's hard to adopt the technology adoption is hard. That is, that is always dispelled the moment we start a project um, because it's real, there's two things. One is obviously you, you need to have um, correct amount of training. And we, you know, we do that and we work with crews. In fact, when we start a project, we go out with the crews on site and work with them through it. But, Very quickly, the construction guys figure out that making this shift to working on an iPad helps them get paid faster. It means that when they're done for the day, they're done for the day. They don't need to spend any time in the evening writing handwritten notes on paper or calling in updates. It's all done for them. And, you know, sometimes you have, for example, the crew foreman who may be an older gentleman who's not really good with using technology, but there's always somebody on the crew. The, the foreman doesn't have to be the one to manage the iPad. And so right. there's always some younger guy on the crew who's happy to do that. Um, and so, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of crews out there working right now using Render, and um, it, it, it's, it's not a barrier at all.
1: Right. So ultimately, yeah, sort of the last, question or not question, but sort of, you know, getting a statement from you um, is um, the, the technology competence of the various people in the chain I've described. Um, it, it's a doable thing to make that um, work well. Is that your, that's like your bottom line? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's accurate. You know, it's, it's a change in thinking. It's a shift in thinking. Um, you really have to, you know, just accept that this is a new process and you need to do something differently. But, you know, it's interesting that we, our, our entire industry is um, built around input, getting out in the field and, and building networks and bringing the most advanced fiber technology or technology infrastructure as we can to as many communities as we can and yet we're, we're using, you know, processes that we used 20, 30 years ago to do that. So it's really just, um, it's just a shift in thinking, right? But, um, mm-hmm. you know, once you, once you make that, take that step, you find that it's, it's just so much better. You know, we really need to be able as an industry to take advantage of the innovation um, mm-hmm. that, we are de- that we are deploying, um, but using it ourselves.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, this has been excellent. Um, It's good to understand, you know, some of the inner workings of the, um, you know, the processes and the technology. I mean, obviously we have, you know, bigger issues to deal with when you get this as a collective activity among states and cities and all of that. But I think that um, having people understanding and having technology that enables people to um, know where all the pieces are will do a lot to help deal with the um, the accountability factor. So Lori, I thank you for your time and your expertise, um, and then we'll probably we'll talk again sometime soon.
2: Great, thank you, Craig. It's nice to be with you.
1: All righty, thank you much. Um, our next guest is Dr. Christopher Alley, who is the – or is a associate professor in the Department of Media Studies yeah, for the University of Virginia. Um, Dr. Alley has written a book, uh, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. Um, one, I always have a, a, heart, a soft spot with uh, – Book writers, because I've been a few of those myself, and but also I think um, some of the things that your, what what has Dr. Ali has been talking about, we need to really understand as we look at all this money that's coming in, what are we going to do with it, and can we do it effectively? So, Dr. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Great. So let's jump right in this. Um, I was actually listening uh, to one of your interviews and you mentioned that um, between 2009 and 2017, we were basically spending, you know, five, $6 billion a year to fix a problem. And there's no really indication that the problem has been fixed, but obviously the money has been gone. You know, been allocated. What's our situation now? Are we are we in a crisis moment, or what do you what do you see as our our situation right now, especially as it pertains to the accountability for all of that money? And that's a, that's that's a great question to start us off. Um, I think we've we've been, we've
3: been in a crisis. We've been in a broadband crisis uh, for well over a decade. What's changed, um, of course, in the last 24 months has been the pandemic, which painfully and dramatically exposed our, the gaps in broadband connectivity. So suddenly, it wasn't just about being un-unconnected and connected. It became both un- and under-connected,
0: because mm-hmm. people who
3: thought they were paying for you know a great broadband network and were certainly paying a lot of money. Um, found out that they couldn 't actually do zoom calls from home or particularly couldn 't do multiple zoom calls from home if they had multiple family members or acquaintances living under the same roof and so and so you know this, this gives a lot more urgency to this question of connectivity and this question of not just what I call in the book, getting good enough connectivity out to rural, uh, rural Americans, um, but rather the high-performance broadband that so many um, urban and wealthy Americans take for granted, uh, which brings up this question of accountability, because as you said, you know, $47 billion have been spent uh, between 2009 uh, and, and 2017. I calculated that about $6 billion a year since that time um, has been spent specifically towards rural broadband deployment, getting the infrastructure out there, so not, you know, leaving behind the affordability question for a second. Part of the problem is, you know, this money has been spent, but it has not been spent efficiently. And I'll give you an example. In 2015, the SEC launched the Connect America Fund phase two, and they had a billion dollars a year to spend for six years, 2015 to 20, 2021. And rather than do a reverse auction, rather than ask communities or states, they simply gave this money to the 10 largest telecommunications providers, they're known as price cap providers, with the expectation that in various areas of the country, they would deploy. Problem here is that their deployment thresholds were only at 10 megabits per second download, one megabit per second to upload, 10-1, when the national definition of broadband was, in fact, at, at 25-3. Um, what does that mean? It means that outdated technologies like DSL and satellite could continue to count as broadband, even when a huge chunk of the United States was also moving to fiber. Right? So we started to see a, a massive gap between underconnected areas, particularly in rural America, who are now finding themselves connected and, but, with, but with subpar technology and are now, in fact, uneligible, ineligible, excuse me, uh, for future uh, grants and subsidies because they're already connected on the books.
1: Mm-hmm. Given the dollars that are involved, given that we have defaulted in a sense, our responsibility as a government uh, to um, just let people do what they want. Um, how do we get this under control? I mean, it's, it's crazy
3: it is, and i think I think there's a couple of things that that we can do immediately um, and and I lay out kind of a larger framework for rural broadband deployment in the conclusion of my book. Uh, one of them is we we have to make sure that we, we understand, we appreciate that the digital divide, the rural-urban infrastructure digital divide will not be solved by one provider. It will not probably be solved by the big national providers. Um, it's going to take what I call an all-hands-on-deck approach. And this means privileging local providers, regional providers, municipalities, nonprofits, and cooperatives, both telephone cooperatives and electric cooperatives. They have been the ones kind of, you know, uh, uh, on, on, on not on the front, um, not on the front side, but they have been the ones quietly deploying fiber in their communities. Um, and they, they become kind of the unsung heroes of rural broadband in, in my eyes. Um, mm-hmm. So we need a policy apparatus that, that not only acknowledges their existence, but actually privileges them. Because they are the ones who are, for instance, not defaulting on their promises. They are the ones who are deploying future-proof technologies like fiber and fiber-connected fixed wireless there it's the local providers and it actually goes back to this idea of the theme of this show which is accountability local providers are more accountable to their local communities than the national of providers
0: of course yes mhm
1: i i so i just had a sort of revelation that's that's the that's the key because the local folks they care and so because they care they're going to go the extra mile to make sure they have the best of the best in place in their communities. And and, and, and that also extends to uh,
3: willing to risk the long-term return on investment, the 10, 20-year return on investment.
0: Mm-hmm. The Century
3: Links, Frontiers, Windstreams, AT&Ts, they are not interested in a 20-year return on investment for fiber. They want the quarterly returns because that's what their investors demand. Cooperatives mm-hmm. and and local and regional providers are much more willing because they see it as an investment in the community with a lot more paybacks than just you know uh, you know paying back the fiber. And and I think that's again going back to this accountability issue that is, that becomes so key because broadband needs to be seen as a community investment, as community economic investment, as an investment in health, as an investment in education. Um, investment in infrastructure, certainly, and and again, I you know I can't say I can't speak more highly of the local, regional, and and cooperative providers who are who are doing this connecting. Kind of and I write in the book that local broadband is the best broadband, and I definitely stand by that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've obviously been in that business for a while, maybe fifteen years and so forth. But it seems that. Um, that there has to be a, um, like an, almost an extra human, superhuman effort, to get the um, the state, and the counties and cities working together. Because if you look at where you know where these ha- where these, there are these laws that prevent uh, cities and counties. To do what they want to do, that makes the most sense for them. Um, it's the uh, that state apparatus that gets in the way. So, in your opinion, is it that um, we have to, you know, become super uh, diligent at um, hitting that that weak spot?
3: Well, you know, it, it, it both, it's both the solution and the cause of the problem, right? The, what what, mm-hmm. what are we doing in the States? I fundamentally believe that a, um, a well-run state broadband office is an incredible thing and an incredible wealth of knowledge and resources for local communities. So you look at the state of Minnesota, for instance. They've done a phenomenal job uh, at connecting and informing the residents of Minnesota. Then again, you've got, you know, another 17 states who get in the way and say, Uh, we either prohibit or inhibit municipalities from funding their own networks or deploying their own networks or or operating their own networks. And in the past, there's even been some that said, you know, that electric cooperatives couldn't really get into this game or at least was kind of legal gray area. So I was a big fan of uh, the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act, which I'm sure a lot of of your listeners were too, because it, it had that preemption language to get rid of This nonsense, which was really done at the, you know, the nonsense Mm -hmm. was really created at the behest of the large telecommunications companies to really, you know, free up the relationship between states and and local communities. Um, I was also a fan of, you know, the early, early iterations of of the infrastructure package, which once again privileged local and regional nonprofit and cooperative uh, companies over over the largest providers, that language got stripped in the infrastructure package. But I was really happy to see it as part of the Treasury guidance that came out last week for its uh, ten billion dollar capital fund.
1: So there is hope. <laughs> there
3: is hope. Yes, indeed.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, I've looked at is uh, what I call the Microsoft uh, strategy. Right. So uh, in a in a prior life. Before I got into community broadband, I was in marketing in the, the PC world, and um, if you wanted to move, uh, like freeze a market, all you had to do is have Microsoft say, you know what, we're going to have a solution in six months or sometime in the future, and what that will do is it throws up uh, people. Uh, decision-making process. They would just say, well, let's wait. Are we looking at the mm-hmm. same thing here when we're looking at technologies such as, um, uh, well, 5G, or we look at companies such as um, Starlink? Are the enamorous, Are we being uh, so enamored by the future technology, quote, um, that we are... Stabbing ourselves in the foot uh, in terms of getting both accountability and forward motion.
3: Well, you know, you uh, you you brought up one of my big fears when I speak to communities across the country, and that hearing communities and counties say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna pause our broadband deployment plans because Starlink is just around the corner or five G is just around the corner, and and so much of this is hype. Um, that it becomes really destructive because it could end up being a kind of waiting for Godot moment where they're just mm-hmm. waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing's actually going to happen uh, rather than, you know, work with what they can actually do. And, and in, in states like Virginia, there's a considerable amount because there's a considerable amount of money. I think the, one of the interesting things we need to think about it, and I'm going to focus specifically on Starlink here, is how the hype has been narrowed over the last four years. So, you know, four years ago, Elon Musk says, Starlink is going to bring gigabit fast broadband to the country, right? Everyone's going to have it. Mm-hmm. It's going to compete with fiber. So then two years ago, it's, well, it turns out we can't do everyone and it can't be gigabit, but we're going to give it to rural Americans. Then this year they're saying, well, it's probably not even going to be a lot of rural Americans. It'll be mostly remote Americans, those living in the really the hard-to-reach areas.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so this kind of dialing back the hype is, I think, something that's, that's really worthwhile to pay attention to. Um of course, you know, but I do think on the flip side that for those remote Americans who can A, afford Starlink, it's quite expensive, and, and B, are in a lucky area that Starlink is going to get offered, they will see their connectivity improve. Again, if you're wealthy enough and lucky enough, you can see improved connectivity because Starlink is delivering, I think, they're saying 100 down and 20 up. That's nothing to sneeze at, you know. That's better than DSL, certainly, um, and better than some fixed wireless networks. So, so, so good there. But again, the concern of the hype has gotten in the way of actual deployment plans and strategies is really dangerous, um, especially at this pivotal time when there is a the potential for a lot of money on the table. I mean, here in Virginia, Governor Northam just said $700 million is going to go to deployment. Wow. I don't want to see counties pass that money up because they think Starlink is just around the corner
0: yes
1: cuz that that would just be the whole you know all the good stuff or the potential for all the good stuff just goes down the toilet basically absolutely absolutely okay. yeah i can see that being a being a problem um one of the things that i um i see is we we look at things uh, broadband uh issues you know from a problem-solving perspective, right? Now, in one of the books that I wrote down uh, a couple of years ago, I said that if you are looking at things from a um, problem-solving lens, then what you will often do is the just enough solution, right? You basically say, mm-hmm. okay, I got to get these people off my back and out of my office, so we'll give them just enough that there is progress, but it won't be really um, f- future-proofing the progress. Is that a right. good SPS? So yeah,
3: absolutely. And we do, do, like we do I, about I, that. I call it in my book, and I um, the politics of good enough. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: And and a lot of
3: this I track down down to the the lobbying of industry, right? It is this constant idea for particularly from large telecommunications companies, that DSL and satellite are good enough, right? That, that if rural Americans want more, they either should make more money or they should move to cities, which is such a pejorative way to think about rural Americans. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, that, it, like, it, it really is. It really is awful. Um, nevertheless, so much of, particularly policymaking at the FCC, particularly by keeping thresholds and requirements low, is that it kind of reproduces this politics of good enough. So one of the big, you know, fights right now is speed, right? What should the speed of broadband be? And in my opinion, and as I argue in my book, 25/3, the current definition of broadband, continues to reproduce these politics of good enough because nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is 25/3 ever good enough. Yet we are constantly mm-hmm. being told 25/3 is good enough.
1: But it's not. It's never going to be. Um, it's not. And no, that new absolutely pandemic, not. Well, the pandemic, the pandemic, pretty much laid it out that twenty-five-three um, uh, isn't going to work. Especially when you consider that, in reality, you don't even see the, the, the twenty-five. No. So No, so not again, at all.
3: And and. Oh, sorry, go ahead, please. No, 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 you, you got to take it. Well, I, I, what I was going to say to that is, is and, and Doug Dawson wrote a fantastic blog post on this this week, is is the problem with the idea of a technological neutrality policy position, right? This idea that broadband, all broadband is equal, when in fact we know, you just said it, broadband is not equal. There is a huge difference between DSL. Even within DSL, if you're close to the DSAM, you're going to have better service. if you're three miles away if the copper is fresh you're going to have better service right um that DSL and satellite cable and fiber and fixed wireless are fungible they're 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 you know interchangeable and that is absolutely not the case and we've done this because of a tech of, of of a policy known as technological neutrality and i agree that we should not be saying well you know it's going to be fiber or nothing within policy infrastructure but that said, we need to make the speeds good enough, like more than good enough. Great, you know, to get rid of some of these older technologies. We can't keep keep like can't keep thinking that DSL and satellite are broadband. They're not. They're they're the they're the days of dial up. We don't consider dial up broadband anymore. Why are we mm-hmm. doing it with these other two?
1: So well, I wonder. You know, coming back to uh, the the book that I wrote, when mm-hmm. I talked about the issue of having this, um, you know, fixing the problem as a strategy. The, 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 um, the opposite of that is what I call the creative strategy where you basically, or the creative orientation, where you basically say, let us create something that hasn't been done before and get everybody excited about that and get them on board with that And then you go and say, okay, well, if we're going to create something that has never been done before, if we're going to use telehealth more than just uh, dealing with your doctor on the phone or on the video screen, um, you know, we're doing, you know, things short of surgery. But in order to do that, you have to have faster, better broadband. So in essence, making the goal, Real enough and 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 superlative enough that everybody in the community says that's what we want, and then let's go find the money to make that happen. Do you have a better positioning of your your strength your community's strength to change uh, to, to change things
3: you know I mean that that that's a great that's a great question. Craig and, and I go back to what Lori was saying, and which I absolutely echo, is that I, I do also think that we're past the stage of having to convince folks of the importance of broadband. Um, now we're at the next stage of, of, you know, how do we empower communities to make the right broadband choices for them? Um, and that is where so much of your work, my work, Lori's work can be about um, mitigating some of this hype, right, cutting through the clutter, and yeah, to again, definitely. to help and work with communities, um, make the right decisions. So it's not just AT&T rolling up with a giant briefing book and saying, hey, we can do this for you, or CenturyLink or Frontier, Comcast or Charter, right? But that communities and counties are equipped with the tools necessary to make the right decisions. And I, I, there's so many great organizations doing this work um obviously you know you're fighting we're fighting an uphill battle against the kind of massive amount of power and money coming from big big Telco. um but that being said i think that's really going to be the next step we've done a great job um, making the case for why broadband is so crucial and obviously covid painted that you know gave that lesson painfully 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 But the next step will be making sure that communities have the tools necessary to, to make these decisions.
1: So in one of my uh, reports a couple of years ago, um, I just bluntly laid out a strategy that says take the power. Basically, take, make uh, broadband a reason to either vote somebody into office or out of office. Right, because you got you got two ways in which you can get the political infrastructure to like pay attention: either take away money or give money, or you give give or take away votes. So why not um, you know look at at, at um, broadband as such a valuable uh, utility that we basically turn this into a political um exercise where you basically move people out
3: you know it's funny uh it's funny that you mentioned that because there is actually a case um here in virginia involving a electric cooperative um the cooperative mechanic electric cooperative where the member owners of the cooperatives were very frustrated that the board at the time would not endorse a plan for retail broadband because, of course, electric mm-hmm. cooperatives are doing some great connectivity. The board did not want it. They did not see the value in it. They didn't see the return on investment. And the, the member owners actually staged, um, dare I say, a bit of a coup um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and voted in new
0: members,
3: new new uh, board of directors members that then were able to sway the board and, and make their argument. So we, we are seeing this now. This is happening at a very micro level, you know, in one electric cooperative in one county in Virginia. But nevertheless, I mean, it's, it's kind of a great story about the power that digital champions can have uh, to make the change they want to see.
1: Right, because um, it, it doesn't take a lot to um, get somebody in as a state legislator. I mean, it, it just isn't. I mean, there's, you know, that's one of the reasons why the political landscape changed in 2010 was when people said, you know what, if, if it doesn't take but, you know, a few thousand dollars and a few thousand votes to basically take someone out of office then just do that, focus on that, because that's all man- manageable. It's all manageable. Um, but I think we haven't looked at that. But I think your your example definitely does look at that, which basically says um, if the, the political structure, if it's the city council or the county administrators don't believe in uh, the value of broadband, re- replace them replace them is all right blonde, I mean, but <laughs> right
3: and we and know we know we know we know that broadband is a major uh factor in rural voting and rural politics right um yep. and that's, this is down one way that that rural americans can absolutely express their pleasure or displeasure with how their state legislators have been doing this uh mm-hmm. which is through voting
1: so now um we've got about five minutes what kind of uh, action can we do to address this issue of um, making uh, wireless ISPs, co-ops, cities, and so forth, um, the preferred or at least equal uh, partner or um, uh, option for uh, for broadband? Because it seems like we are hooked up in a situation where uh, we pass rules, you know, whether it's at the FCC or if it's at the state legislature, but they pass rules that that basically handicap uh, small ISPs, wireless ISPs, and so forth. What's the state of the land of that, you know, in your in your opinion, and can we change? The situation.
3: I definitely think change can happen. Um, I, I, and this is what I, this is what I write about in my book, both, both the, the, failure of policy, but also the success coming from the grassroots, from local communities. It's definitely possible. I think our, our collective eyes right now um, need to be, on, um, on the NTIA. Should the infrastructure bill pass as such, right? Because the NTIA is going to get a considerable amount of money. $42 mm-hmm. billion just for deployment. And uh, as the infrastructure package is written, there are not a lot of rules around this money. And so we need to make sure, particularly not a lot of rules that do exactly what you say, which is to encourage, promote, support local, regional, nonprofit, municipal, cooperative broadband. So the pressure needs to be on NTIA to make sure that those rules reemerge when NTIA writes the regulations around the $42, mm-hmm. million, yeah. 42 billion, yeah, excuse me, fine broadband deployment part of the infrastructure package. Mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely going to be, and, and, and we know that going in because we know the NTA will get the money. So this should, this should be something at the policy level that we're doing right now is putting some pressure on NTA to make sure that history does not repeat itself, particularly the history of the FCC, which has always privileged what I call the largest and the loudest providers, right? So right. we have a different, we have a chance, a, a, an important chance. If the
1: infrastructure bill gets passed,
3: uh, to put some pressure on NTAA to make sure that the local voices are being heard.
1: Okay, two minutes. Tell me, what would you give as the two, um, you know, recommendations that um, urban folks can learn from the rural craziness that we've seen?
3: You know, I, uh, that's a great question. Great question to end on. Uh, thing one would be go visit rural areas and talk to people. Right? I think this is something that, that is not done enough. But hearing the stories, hearing the uh, directly from rural voices, you realize how powerful it is. Um, and, and this is something certainly that I did on my research is, is going to where the problems are. I think sometimes in, in urban wealthy areas, we have a presumption of the connected. And we need to make sure That The presumption of the connected does not influence the way that policy is being made. So definitely, one, um, visit uh, these rural communities and spend time with them. And to be honest, that might be my biggest and best piece of recommendation right now for urban policymakers is go out to rural areas. Even if you don't represent those areas, go and spend some time, meet with these people to understand the value that broadband can bring
1: to rural life. Great. That that that's a good wrap. Good way to end a Friday. I want to thank you for your time and your expertise, and I look forward to learning more. I also plan to get the book, and I think there's a lot that we can do. And so I uh, I wish you luck with all of your endeavors and hopefully we can, uh, make make change happen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, and to my audience, thank you again for stopping by. Uh, We'll be back next week with more uh, great guests and more great topics. Have a great weekend.